you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, we're plugging li- right along. Chapter 17. For Samuel 17. As you're turning there, I want to read a verse from last week's passage. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7 says this. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I think that sets us up good to look at 1 Samuel 17. It's a long chapter, but we're going to look at the whole story. It's one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. Let's start by reading verses 1 through 3. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And so initially, as we come into this chapter, we just we see a very typical scene in the ancient world where you've got two armies that are lined up on facing mountain slopes, and there's a valley between them where the battle will be joined, and they're lined up, one on one side and one on the other. This region, it's about, uh, I didn't write this down, I want to say 10, 12 miles west of Bethlehem within an easy traveling distance, which is going to come into the story later. Now, if you remember, the Philistines had, for a long time, pressured Israel. They had put incredible taxes on them. They had pushed them down and oppressed them. And then, as we come into uh, chapters 13 and 14, they had come up to, to try to wipe them out, essentially. And, and God used Jonathan to spark a defeat of them. He, he sends Jonathan and his armor bearer, they go up and they sneak over, they don't really sneak, they climb down and back up this rocky crag to the Philistines who had said, yeah, we'll come teach you a lesson. And they kill 20 of them and the armies flee. And we don't know the time gap between that and, and this chapter, but it's probably some amount of time. And, and so the Philistines have now come back into the region after they'd been pushed out by Saul's army And now they're coming back, and they're back in the land of Judah, setting up to to challenge Israel. But instead of just coming in with their army, they decide to take a different tactic. If you start in verse 4, we'll read down through verse 11. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw for battle?' Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? 
Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. The Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So instead of just coming out and attacking, the Philistines here send out a champion. And, and this kind of one-on-one -on -one combat to represent two nations was not unusual. It's interesting, as I was reading about this this week, it's actually not well attested in the ancient Near East, this kind of two representatives going out to do battle. It, it's possible, actually, that the Philistines, who were a people who immigrated to this region, might have introduced this form of battle, this form of warfare, to the region. And if you have Goliath on your side, why wouldn't you introduce this form of warfare to the region where if one guy goes out and he wins, we get to, we win the war, we win the battle. Um, it, was a, it was a strategy that armies would use to prevent massive bloodshed. I mean, you got to think, most ancient people didn't have standing armies. So these guys, not only, if they die, it's not just that you're losing men in your army. These guys got to go back to their farms. They've got to go back to their families. And so it, it would be a good strategy for, for nations to, to settle their disputes with, well, we'll send our champion out. But, but the Philistines send out their champion, and instead of trotting someone out to meet them, Israel quakes in fear. And if you look at the description of Goliath, you can see why. His height was six cubits and a span. A, a cubit is 18 inches, roughly, from the tip of your finger to the bottom of your elbow, and a span would be from here to here. You add that all up, you've got someone who's nine foot nine. And I'm just trying to like picture that. Now, does everybody know who Shaq is? Yeah. Basketball player in the 90s, seven foot two. The difference between Lorelei's height and Shaq's height is the difference between Shaq and Goliath. <laughs> it's just hard to even picture somebody this tall. Now, the, the tallest person we have record of in, in modern history was a guy in the early uh, 20th century, I think his name was Robert Wadlow, who was 811. But, but when people get that tall today, like they've got a, a genetic disorder that causes them to just get really tall and they're really frail, they're not usually big strong people. Goliath is carrying armor, that weigh, his, his coat of mail weighs 126 pounds. The head of his spear, that 600 shekels of iron, 15, 16 pounds, just the head of his spear, let alone the shaft that it's like a weaver's beam. What exactly that means, commentators differ, but it's probably like wrapped in, in leather to make it easier to throw. <laughs> you know? um, th this is an imposing, terrifying figure. And this is exactly why the Israelites had wanted a king, right? Back in chapter 8, when they're demanding a king, in verse 20, we shall, there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. If He's going to lead our army into battle, but if we need somebody to go one-on-one, -on -one, we're going to trot out the guy who's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. That's Saul, right? He's, he's the big guy in Israel, and instead of going out and meeting this foe, as would be his role, he is quaking in his tent while his army's out there screaming. 
Saul is, Saul's got a job and he's hiding from it. And if you go on into verse, verses 12 and following, we're reintroduced to David and Jesse and David's oldest brothers. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. And the author's probably telling us this so that we understand why Jesse hasn't gone out to battle. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. Now, if you remember, those are the same three who were named in chapter 16, and the Lord rejected him, and the Lord didn't pick him, and the Lord rejected him. But they're the three that have gone out to battle. They're the oldest, the biggest, the strongest. David was the youngest, verse 14. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And if you remember again, chapter 16, David had come to Saul's court to play music for him, so that when Saul had this oppressive spirit come upon him from God, David would play his music and Saul would be soothed. And apparently, he's, he's not staying with Saul permanently. He's just going back and forth. When Saul needs him, he calls him, he comes, he plays his music, then he goes back and he takes care of the sheep. Verse 16, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. 40 days, six weeks, Saul does or Goliath does this. In the next verses, David takes gifts from his father to, to the battle. Uh, Jesse is worried about his sons. And so he sends David and says, hey, take these gifts to them, take these gifts to their commanders, and bring me back word of how things are going. You know, Jesse's probably thinking there's actually some fighting going on, not some we come out and we scream and then we run away when they send out the big scary guy. Verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Fighting used pretty loosely there. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So David, he arrives just in time for battle, and if you imagine like being this young guy and your brothers are out there to fight, this has got to be super exciting. Like, I got here just in time, I can hear them out here screaming at each other, the two armies are calling out the battle cry, and he's come, like, I'm going to see the action, I'm going to be right here as it happens. And then the Goliath comes out, and the army wilts. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Now just think about this going on for 40 days. You would think at some point somebody would get sick of this, where we both sides come out and we scream at each other, like, ah, you know, we've got our intense battle cry. And then Goliath walks out as he does twice a day, screams at us, sends someone out to fight me, and the army runs away. <laughs> for, for six weeks, this is, I, I just, like there are parts of this where I was reading it this week, and I'm like, I don't think I realized how ridiculous this sounds. Like how foolish the army of the living God, as David's going to call it later, looks here. 
They just look weak and pathetic. And Goliath's happy to just keep coming out and making fun of them. What we're going to see here, though, as we, as we go through, I want to look at David, David's contrast to this cowardice. And that's, that's the faith of David. I want to see four things about faith. The first is the motivation of faith, which is God's name. Verses 24 to 30, we'll, we'll read uh, 24 to 27 to start with. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. So again, in verse 24, we saw the armies of God melting away with fear. In verse 25, Saul, again, we still see is gripped by that exact same fear, the same fear that everyone else has. Saul is afraid to go fight Goliath, but he's willing to pay someone else to do it. He's willing to pay someone else to do his job. Oh, he'll reward them richly. He'll give them his daughter. He'll give them riches. He'll make them free, which... Free, it could either mean one of two things or maybe both, that he would be free from service in the court of the king or he would not have to pay taxes. Uh, So this is a great reward for someone who's willing to do this and yet six weeks have gone by and no one has stood up to the test. No one has gone out to fight Goliath. And David is indignant. He is, he's upset. Who is this Philistine? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What what is upsetting David? He is upset that there is reproach upon God's people because that reproach upon God's people implies a reproach upon God. When When the army of the living God, when the people of God act weak and afraid, it makes everyone else think that the God they represent is weak and afraid. When God's people, those who bear his name, are consumed by fear, God's name is it's besmirched. We are, we are saying with our actions and with our attitudes that God is not worthy of faith. And that's exactly what's going on here. The people are acting as if they can't trust God. But David says, verse 26, that this is the living God. We are the armies of the living God, he says. And if God is alive, who cares how tall Goliath is? That's an irrelevant point. Verses 28 to 30, Eliab, his older brother, is apparently convicted by this uh, confidence that his younger brother has. Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it but a word? Not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. The people answered him again as before. It's pretty easy reading through that section to like, Come on, Eliab, what's wrong with you? 
But as an oldest brother, I definitely can resonate <laughs> with that attitude of uh, basically assuming everything your younger brothers do is stupid. Um, that, uh, that, that verse kind of worked me over this week. The, the question we should ask, though, I mean, David's, David's motivations are being called into question here. And, and if he was just worried about himself, his natural reaction here would not be to just say, come on, like, really, I was just asking some questions. He, he would throw back the insult. He, or he would go pouting home, like, well, he's picking on me again. And that's not what he does. He just keeps asking the right question. Who is this Philistine? Why is nothing being done? Why are we letting this go on day after day after day after day? What is your deepest motivation? David is deeply motivated by a desire to see God's name honored rightly. I think for us, oftentimes, the the motivation is, what's comfortable for me? What's the easy decision for me to make right now? What do I feel like doing in this very moment? Well, if we're counting on how we feel to direct us in the right direction... We are always going to take the path of least resistance like the Israelites here. It's a lot easier to cower in your tent than it is to say, shouldn't somebody do something? Shouldn't something be done here? If, if, we, if we want to be driven towards a growing faith or a sacrificial holiness, the only thing that is going to sustain that passion is not a desire even for for you wanting to be better, like your desire to be better and to be a good person, that's not going to get you there either. The only thing that will sustain, sustain progress towards godliness is a passion for God's glory. Will my actions in this situation... Because if, if I'm thinking about making myself feel good either in a seeking pleasure or in a feeling like a good person sense, I can always argue my way out of doing the right thing. I can always give myself an excuse like, well, I'll, I'll do better next time. But if my desire, if my motivation is to honor God in every circumstance and to see his name lifted up, then it's going to clarify a lot of murky questions in my mind. Like, what in this situation will actually honor God? So faith's deepest motivation is to honor God. God's name. The second thing we're going to see is that faith has a different perspective than the world. What is the perspective of faith? It's a God-centered perspective. Beginning in verse 31, when the words of David that David spoke were heard, they were repeated before Saul, and he sent for them. And so word gets around that David's asking this subversive question, and it's upsetting people, and maybe they're kind of saying, like, what? Who is this kid? Like, what's going on here? And so they send him to Saul. Saul asks for him, like, bring, bring him here. If he's got all these questions, he can, he can come ask me. And in verse 32, David comes in, and we don't even hear Saul asking him any questions. David just comes in and says, hey, let no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Let no man's heart quit, quit being scared, everybody. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul has got to be humored greatly, right? So here's Saul, the tallest man in Israel, and 
And here comes this young shepherd boy, ruddy and handsome in appearance. We've heard him called once already, and we'll hear him called that again. And, and this good-looking, nice little teenage boy comes in and says, Hey, don't worry. I'll go fight him for you. <laughs> Saul's like, uh, I don't think so, David. Saul said to David, You are not able to go and fight with, go to this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. That Saul has the perfectly rational, normal human perspective here, right? You can't do this. He's, he's experienced. You're young. He's big. You're little. You're brave, but he's competent. He's a killer, and you're the musical choir boy. Like, come on. Come on, David. Let, let's think this through clearly. I'm glad you're brave, but this is, this is silly. But David is undeterred. In, in verses 34 and following, David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. And so the first thing that David says is, You're actually underestimating my hand-to-hand -hand combat experience, Saul. You, know, you don't understand. Being a shepherd isn't as easy as it looks. You know, I night, write this nice poetry about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside path, or, you know, leads me beside still waters. Like, this is, yes, it is nice, but, but sometimes you have to protect those sheep. And sheep are utterly defenseless on their own. So if a lion comes or a bear comes, guess who has to save them? They aren't saving themselves. Like you see even wild sheep, like they have to live places where nothing else can get to them, right? They have to live on the steep rock faces where nothing else can get to them because they're defenseless animals. And David is saying, but I've been defending them for years. Lion came, I killed him. Bear came, I killed him. Goliath, he's just like one of these. I'm going to kill him. But ultimately his... Even though he does have more experience than Saul gives him credit for, his confidence isn't in his experience, per se. Verse 36, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And his reasoning isn't, he'll be like one of them, because I could take them and I can take him too. His logic is, he'll be like one of them, one of those animals that I killed, because he defied God, he doesn't have a chance. If he's defying God, God will bring him down. I don't know how familiar anybody here is with the, the old song, God's Gonna Cut You Down. It's, it's an old spiritual from the early 20th century, probably most famous because of a Johnny Cash cover. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you go tell that long-tongue liar, you go tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him sooner or later, God's gonna cut you down. Sooner or later, it's going to cut you down. Somebody should go tell the Philistine that God's going to cut him down. Verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul, he doesn't really have an argument. He says to David, Go and the Lord be with you. <laughs> but, but still, Saul is still stuck with his earthly mindset. Okay, you can go... Give it your best shot. Like, I'm going to lose, lose my music man, but, boy, somebody should try something. But here, let me give you my armor. 
which is, again, ridiculous. Saul is huge. I mean, he's not as big as Goliath, but he's a big guy, and he's going to give his armor to David. Saul clothed David with his armor, verse 38, put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then he said, David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, and he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. David, David takes tools to the battle. He doesn't just go and say, well, God's going to like zap him with lightning or something. He, he, he takes tools, but he takes tools that he's familiar with, tools that he's trained with, and which God has previously delivered him by. I wonder, as we look at Saul and David there, what lens are you using to view life? The merely human? Are you just looking at what is humanly possible? Or do you approach situations knowing that God is with you? That that God is with you, and if you are fighting the Lord's battle, there's nothing you should fear. If God be for us, who can be against us? Next thing we see is the assurance of faith. So David, he, he, he takes his stones and he heads out. In verse 41, we see the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And you've got to think, the Philistine is just going, finally, finally something to do besides shout at these guys. This is ridiculous that I've had to wait this long, but finally I get to kill somebody. And verse 42, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? You come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. So so Goliath, he comes, and like I said, he's probably excited at first that he's got somebody to fight, and then he gets closer, and he's like, Is that a kid out here? Like, it... And he's carrying a stick. <laughs> what? You know, remember, Goliath has this javelin strung behind him. He's got a spear. He's got, doesn't tell us this earlier, but he's got a sword strapped to him. He's, he's fit for battle. And this kid comes out with a staff. Like, is he a Jedi? Or, like, what, what is going on? This is, and he, he just scorns him, curses him by his gods, verse 43 says. He tells him, I'm going to feed you to the animals. Okay, send, send a kid out to me. I'll kill him. I'll feed him to the animals. Big deal. Notice, if you look at verses 40 to 45, six verses there, seven times it says, the Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine. It, I think the author wants you to feel like how weighty his presence is. It's hard to do in literature. Like, I mean, how many times have you read this and not really thought about just how enormous Goliath is? But, but one of the things the author is doing here is he's just over and over again saying, the Philistine moved forward. The Philistine looked at David. The Philistine said to David. The Philistine said to David. Like, just, he wants you to feel his presence is like this big, overwhelming, casting this long shadow down the valley, and David standing here under this shadow. And in human terms, David should be deathly afraid. Because in human terms, David is about to die. And, and you should feel that. 
But then notice he's also not calling him Goliath. He's calling him the Philistine, who David has referred to as this uncircumcised Philistine, pointing out that he's not part of the covenant people of God. He doesn't have God on his side. And so he may be a hulking, huge, weighty presence, but he doesn't have God on his side. The place of David's confidence, God, gives him full assurance of his victory. We see that in verses 45 where David talks back to the Philistine. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. David draws a sharp contrast between the weapons that Goliath is bringing, his sword, his javelin, his spear, and what David is coming in, the name of the Lord God. And it's interesting there. Like you would think, David would say, you come with a sword and a spear and a javelin, and I come with a staff and a sling. Like th those are the weapons. But the contrast he draws is between Goliath's confidence in his tools and in his prowess and in his size and David's confidence in the God of the universe. That, that's the difference between them. It's not their implements of war that's the biggest difference. It's where their confidence lies that is the biggest difference. Do you have that sort of confidence in God? Do you know that the, the God of all the universe, if your trust is in Christ, he is for you and not against you. That there is nothing in this world that can stand against the one whose confidence is in God Almighty. They approach one another. Continue reading in verse 46. This is, read the rest of what David has to say. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. They, they approach one another after, after David makes this bold declaration of faith, that the battle is the Lord's. And all, all this buildup, all this lead up, 47 verses getting us ready for this huge conflict, and the last two verses. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. That fast. We're, we're waiting for this big clash of the titans now. And not, David slings a stone, hits Goliath, Goliath falls on his face. That's the end of the big, scary monster. That, that psalm that we read, Psalm 143, the last two verses. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love you will cut off my enemies. And you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. The biggest, scariest things we face are nothing to God. As I was listening to... Uh, 
the sermon that Pastor Fred preached out of this passage, and he, he, uh, he noted, Goliath is so big and scary, and everyone else looks at him and thinks he can't lose. And David looks at him and sees he's so big and says, I can't miss. <laughs> like that's how, that's how quick this is over. David just runs out, slings a stone, and drops him. The final thing we see about faith is the victory of faith. And in verses 50 to 54, we see a great victory. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his, its sheath and killed him. He cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered the, their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now before we come back and, and finish looking at verses 50 and following, uh, I just think one of the questions I had last week uh, trying to think through was, why does Saul not seem to know who David is at the end of the chapter when he's been serving in his court? And probably what happens, again, we don't know the exact time lapse between the beginning of chapter 16 and chapter 17, but if David's been going back and forth for some time, coming when Saul needs someone to play music, notice Saul doesn't actually ask, who is this young man? He, he seems to know who David is, but he doesn't know where he's from. He doesn't know who his dad is. He doesn't know his family. And so he's asking whose son is, like, where is he from? I know he's been around, but, like, I just sent someone to go get him anytime I needed him. I didn't call up his dad and say, hey, send him over. You know, so, so Saul is just, he's wondering, because he's about to give his daughter in marriage to this man now. That's what he's promised. He's promised his daughter in marriage to this man. And so he wants to know who is this guy? Like, I just thought he was the guy that came with the harp and played some nice music, and now he's out killing giants? This is not what I expected from him. But if we back up into verse 50, and 50, 51 especially, and we find what, again, I've, I've said this multiple times, when you're reading it with little boys, this is like the best part of the story, right? He comes and he takes his sword, and probably the stone doesn't actually kill him. It's a little murky in the text, like at what point is Saul or Goliath actually dead? But, but he's probably stunned by that stone, and David comes up, takes his sword away, disarms him, and then beheads him with his own sword, which is insult to injury, if you will. That, it, it seems like a gruesome and gory part of the text, but, but this disarming, dispatching, and beheading of the defeated foe is actually where I think we can find 
the most direct application for ourselves today. Not because we're supposed to go around beheading our enemies, um, but, but the character we most resemble in this story isn't David. The, the character we most resemble in this story is the cowering army of Israel. That, that's where we as individuals most naturally find ourselves, whether we're honest with ourselves about that or not. That's where we most naturally are. And we, just like they, need someone to fight for us. We need someone to stand up to the giant in our place. <laughs> the great giant that we face, it's not financial pressure. It's not work stress. It's not relational trouble or political opponents. It's not bad health or home repairs. It's sin. And we are bound to lose in part because we're inclined to just stay there because it's easier for us. But there was a greater son of David who defeated our sin, canceling our record of debt and disarming Satan and his demonic foes who would hold such things over us. If you look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 beginning in verse 13 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The reason we can triumph over sin in our life isn't just because, oh, we can follow David's example and muster up faith. Well, we can't just muster it up on our own. It's a gift that's given to us when we trust in Christ. He gives us the spirit who enables us to keep trusting, to keep following, to put sin to death. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because remember, he nailed all of the things we're condemned for, nailed them to the cross, triumphed over them, disarmed them, holds them to open shame. Verse 2 of Romans 8, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God, God has reoriented what should be our motivation by displaying his glorious name at the cross. And God, through the cross, can change our perspective through which we see the world. No longer as seeing things merely by what's humanly possible, but by what God has made possible through sending his Son to be our Redeemer. God, through the cross of Christ, assures us, gives us confidence because of his love and protection given through Christ, who died for us. And the cross of Christ promises us victory even over death itself and we'll read these verses 
just in our scripture reading next week, but 1 Corinthians, I want to close with these. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and following through 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we can have faith and act in faith like David because a greater son of David has already killed the giant. The, the biggest giant we'll ever face is already dead. And now we can daily put it to death in our life through the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in Christ we have the victory. All the promises of God are yes in him. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in you. We can't ever earn that gift. We can't ever earn that victory on our own. And yet you've given it freely. Thank you for it.